There are Jews in the world. There are Buddhists. There are Hindus and Mormons and then. There are those that follow Mohammed's but I've never been one of them. So big, so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. Hello, good morning, evening, afternoon, whenever you're listening to me. We're doing things a little bit different because it's a big week, and uh, I wanted to talk about Sunday, which was the Transfiguration. Wanted to walk over Mardi Gras and get right into Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. So, to do that though, had to change up the format a little bit. We're going to kind of touch on what was said in the Gospels, at least for the Transfiguration. And really get into Lent, because it is Lent, and Lent is important. And I feel like I'm holding my microphone up, and I don't know why. Anyway, so what is the Transfiguration? What happened? Well, we have to go back a little bit to discuss what happened in Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 28 where Jesus told his disciples that he had to suffer and die and be raised to life again and Peter rebuked him he said no that's bullshit and you know you rebuke him and then Peter got struck with lightning and died right no he, he didn't he uh <clears throat> Jesus told him to get back that he was being a stumbling block that he was more concerned with the human aspects of the world and not the godly ones so then we come into this moment only six days later when Jesus grabs Peter who he just rebuked and James and John drug him up high into the mountains and met with Moses and Elijah and there they saw him transfigured they saw him transform they showed him to be what he is the way of reconciliation between God and us <clears throat> just like Moses was the one to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt into freedom and the same way that Elijah brought the people back into relationship with God during the Babylonian exile. And it's important because in that transfiguration, they saw fulfilled the promise of reconciliation with God. They also saw in the transfiguration, the promise of eternal life. And finally, what they saw in his transfiguration, he let Peter, James, and John have a sneak peek 
at the ending of God's story for us, humanity. Not by our own righteous behavior and good works, but by Jesus reconciling us to God. It's a story of Jesus taking on the burden of our sin and death so that we could receive eternal life. But before we can receive these gifts, we need to see Jesus as Peter, James, and John did, as he really is, a savior and a teacher. Romans 10:9 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I hope that you do that. And I hope you can now know the joy and peace knowing that eternal life is waiting for us and for all the good people. Now, I am sure that we all stuffed ourselves good and plenty on Tuesday. You know, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, whatever you call it. And today is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a special day, and it's one that I'm especially drawn to every year. It's the first time that I honestly heard the gospel. And I mean that, not that God spoke to me on high and I heard his thundering voice. No, it wasn't like that. It was actually this particular season and year, way back several, several times over, that the lesson resonated with me. The gospel resonated with me. I felt Jesus's words. And that's something pretty important. It, it's really big. Because in this particular lesson, chapter 6 of Matthew, he talks about some things that a lot of people don't want to hear today. He speaks on things that a lot of people won't enjoy being told because he talks about how we should practice our faith and not in a way that is <clears throat> standing up and yelling and jumping around like you know idiots and saying have you found Jesus no he he wants nothing to do with that shit and that's that's pretty important because we see that a lot today. People professing their faith, but not being faithful. And I saw that growing up and it, it bothered me. It really sank deep and hurt me. So what does it say? What did I hear? I heard, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. So then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you give alms, when you give to the church, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and in the streets, so they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward. When you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so they can be seen by others. 
They've received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you fast, don't look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face as to show others they are fasting. And I tell you, they receive their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that in your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust can consume and where thieves can break and steal, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's what I want to talk about. That's what we're going to focus on. As you probably noticed, I'm pretty big in social media, as in I've I have Twitter, I have Facebook, I scroll through all the time, and I have to tell you that every once in a while there's this post that pops up, and usually the people who post it are people I care about, but also have a lot of disagreements with. I want to preface with that. But in it, it talks about, you know, letting kids pray in school, that God's not allowed in school, they're not allowed to pray, which, honestly, I want to preface this by saying it's bullshit. Because that's not what the thing is with that whole issue. Kids are allowed to pray. No one's stopping them. No one is stopping anyone from praying in school. In fact, I'll lay down a big truth here. If you are in America, you should know that the Supreme Court has protected a child's right to pray over and over and over again. What is also done is over and over again agreed and upheld that a school cannot demand and mandate anyone to pray. So then what's the deal? Why are these people so upset about there not being, quote, prayer in school, even though it, it's there? Trust me, I, I was ugh, so annoying when I was growing up because of what I heard in today's lessons. See these kids gather on the flagpole, looking around with their what would Jesus do bracelets, and then loudly pray and point at people they are praying for. Like hypocrites. So why am I calling them hypocrites? What is so wrong with praying like that? Well, the place I think we need to start is with what an understanding of what prayer truly is. See, it's that intensely personal, intimate conversation with God. Now, there's a lot of theological assumptions caught up in this understanding. First is, there is a God to whom to pray. Further, this God is no less than personal, perhaps super personal, whatever that means. But no, more or less, it's a personal relationship we're trying to have. This God is the one at the heart of the universe who can listen, who does hear, and respond to our prayers in God's own way. It's a faith assumption about God and about prayer, and it's based on the solid ground of scripture and experience of countless Christians down through the ages. So what does Matthew's Jesus talk about prayer best is being done in private or in the closet, where one speaks from the deepest part of one's being, the deepest part of the universe. 
I believe that's the best model for prayer. Especially from what I just read from the Gospel of Matthew. See, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you listen to that, it's, it's not any of our formal prayers or spoken prayers in church as important as those kinds of prayers may be, but it is an intensely personal conversation. That intensely personal wrestling that Jesus does in the hour of greatest need. Jesus' prayer was a real prayer. The opening up of his entire life. That surrendering of his being to the one he called Dad. The kind of prayer depends upon the context of faith, community of faith. And again, I say prayer grows out of a faith understanding that is a byproduct of the community of faith such as a church that loves and supports you truly. It's not for the public sector, such as public schools. It's not something for judge and jury. It's not something for presidents and Congress and the Senate. Those places, those people are hypocrites when they're trying to pretend they are praying. The second thing that needs to be said about this whole matter is that it is not the state's role to teach prayer. <clears throat> I, I've heard it say we need to bring God back to the classrooms, as I said before. And every time I've gone anywhere in the secular setting and, and I've been asked to give an invocation or a blessing, I've never invited God to be present because I believe God is already there. I've also kept it as unbelievably not as secular as possible because I believe that's the most respectful thing. When I have to give a blessing at work, of which is something that my guys really appreciated, you have to understand that in that house at any given time, there was a Muslim, there was a Jew, there was a Mormon, a Methodist, an Episcopalian, and a Catholic. All of these traditions pray differently. All of them believe in God. So what kind of evening prayer, what kind of prayer over a meal do you give? I'd always say, bless his food to our use and us to your service. Amen. That's it. No invocation to Jesus, no invocation to God itself. Just an inference that we would like this food to be blessed by whomever, whatever is listening. And it is up to our faith to believe in who and what is blessing that food. Because prayer is that intensely personal conversation. Our responsibility is to open our eyes and see the presence of God wherever we are. God is, does not need to be brought into a classroom. God's already there. We need to help our young people have the eyes that can see God at work in the classroom and whenever they are. <clears throat> so let our kids pray. When I stop to think about it, no teacher has ever stopped me from praying. And there's been many a test when our only hope I thought I had was to reach out to God in prayer. And that was 
a big part of it also is because I have ADHD. I can't stay focused. I hated the fact that everyone kept telling me to take my fucking time with tests. I wanted that shit done. Get the hell out of my way. So I would ask God to help me find patience to finish. To help me find that little nugget of attention that I have for the test. It's amazing. People think that kids can't pray. Of course, to be fair, God's answer to my prayers probably would have been, well, you prayed to me earlier, I would have given you the answer. That answer was study, which again, ADHD is not gonna work that way. But when you take that extension, no teacher can stop a child from praying. That's what the Supreme Court said. No authority anywhere on earth can stop another human being from truly praying though, because that prayer is internal. Now the kind of prayer we're talking about when we talk about prayer in the public schools would be a prayer so formulated, not offered and not, to not offend anyone, like I've done at work. It would be a prayer developed by a committee that would then be revised by another committee until we have this pale, anemic reflection of what prayer is all about. But for those people who want prayer in the classroom, that's what they want. They don't want the real thing. They want a show of a thing. But it's nothing like that intense personal prayer that we find Jesus praying in Gethsemane. And that's where we're headed, starting in Ash Wednesday. And some say, well, prayer even in a formal watered-down prayer can't hurt anyone. But you know what? It takes away the entire meaning of prayer when it's viewed that way. What we want our kids to do is to learn to pray the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed. Not to give them some official version of a prayer that gets official approval through so many committees. And yeah, I know, I'm an Episcopalian, I have a book of common prayer, and we have a formulated prayer for literally anything. But it kind of brings me to my third thing. This area of the doctrine of separation of church and state. Because I'm an Episcopalian, folks. It was born right across the street from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. They're legitimate spheres for activity of the church and religion, and a legitimate sphere for the activity of the state. Part of the great insight and understanding of our father, founding fathers, both of my church and this country, was to keep tension between these spheres, the sphere of the church and the sphere of the state. The sphere of faith and morality, and the sphere of welfare and well-being of the people. The important thing about keeping tension between these two is that it keeps us from the abuse and tyranny of one or the other spheres. And it's kind of forgotten sometimes today, especially by so-called Christians who want those formulated watered-down prayers, these Christian nationalists. The church reserves the right to speak to the state and to call into question when it operates in a way that runs alien to the values of faith. 
and that's something we haven't done enough of. The church has also experienced this corruption down through the years, and a situation the state needs to confront the church with its corruption, which is happening now. The Mormon church was recently found to have been hiding a few billion dollars in investment assets, and therefore the state fined the Mormon church a few million dollars. It is a bad church. Bad. But honestly, if you study history of civilization, you know how dangerous it can be when religion gets mixed up with the state. And you can't distinguish at all between the two. I'll give you two cases. One's the Inquisition, when the state carried out the wishes of the church and trying, the, trying and torturing those seen to be heretics. And the most recent one was Iran, under the leadership of the Ayatollah Khomeini, where religion... The church and the state were blended into one, with no check on one or the other. <clears throat> so you see, with this kind of understanding, I say in response to that, to that post about praying, who in the world is stopping them? Prayer is a reflex of our deepest being to turn towards God. A spiritual tropism, and no one, no one anywhere can stop anyone from doing just that. Let's remember, when we think of prayer in a public school, not to think of the pale, anemic, watered-down official version of prayer that some official might write to satisfy everyone. Brother, let us think of our young people being able at any moment to live out their lives in prayerful reflection on the presence of God in their midst and how God can be a vital part of their lives. So, when someone says that the Bible's not in school or that God's not in school, I really only have to ask, where are you looking and why? Today is the beginning of Lent. There's going to be a lot of reflection. So tag along. And I'll see you on Sunday. Remember that we are but dust. The dust of stars. And atoms so ancient that they were there at the beginning of time. And to that timelessness, and to God, and to dust... We all shall return. I love you. Love each other. And remember, all are welcome.